The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast, brought to you by always, as always, by the folks from WinBet, W-Y-N-N-B-E-T. Jeff Erickson here, and my guest today is the great Jeff Ponce. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Prospect Jesus. You can get 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 his work at Prospects Live. Uh, this summer, he did a lot of work uh, covering the Cape Cod League at Perfect Game USA. And of course, you can hear him on the Rasball Podcast with Gray as well. So, uh, Jeff, want to thank you so much for coming on board today. Thanks a lot, Jeff, for just a, a couple of Jeffs on a pod. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a fun time of year. You're in Tout Wars head-to-head, which mm-hmm. means it's playoff time in all head-to-head leagues right now. Head-to-head is like a short fall in my game. I don't really play any, but it's wildly popular. And I feel like I probably should be doing a lot more of that, but I know how big it is in our industry. A lot of people, especially if anybody that's come over recently, they probably their first introduction is in head-to-head fantasy. Yeah, especially I think, you know, it's a format that translates well from fantasy football. Um, yep. You know, it's 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 a format that I think a majority of folks playing fantasy that are out there um, are really familiar with it, right? They're used to players getting points per game, totaling up and, you know, sort of playing it that way. Um, you know, I, I had originally come into fantasy baseball, I want to say, you know, 2003 was probably the first competitive league I ever had. It was a mm-hmm. bunch of guys from work and college, and it was a head-to-head categories league. And I had kind of played up in, in that until probably about 2009, 2010, where I got involved with like the RCLs over at Rasball um, mm-hmm. and had been pretty much a roto guy, which I still feel is probably my strongest game. Um, but over the last couple of years, uh, I slid into playing into more um, head-to-head points leagues. And my home league, I actually got invited into, um, probably been playing in that now for about six or seven years is a head-to-head points league. And there were some of the early adopters. And I really didn't like the format at first. But over the last couple of years, I've come to appreciate uh, sort of the nuance. And I think the thing that's fun is walks. All these things that sometimes in your standard five-by-five right. roto format with you know your normal categories, you don't necessarily get points for that. Um, and I think you know the emphasis on pitching, which is something I definitely de-emphasize in a lot of my uh, roto builds, is sort of a nice change of pace. And I like to play all the different formats. So I get the different contexts of different leagues. And, you know, as somebody who writes about baseball and, you know, gives fantasy advice from time to time, 
uh, can have some insight on that and some firsthand experience. So yeah, um, it's a, it's a format that I've gotten into over the last couple of years and, you know, having the, uh, the opportunity and the privilege to play in tout is certainly um, only, you know, furthered that. Yeah. And I always complain about being in too many leagues, but the reason I do it is I play a lot of different format. Well, I mm-hmm. love it. First of all, uh, and I love the draft. We all love the draft and exactly. then it's just, the, you know, playing it all out and make sure that, but you know, if I'm going to answer questions about that particular type of format, I should be playing more. So I think next year I will get into a little bit more head-to-head points. I want to do that a little bit. One of the things I do like about head-to-head, especially points, is you don't have to chase saves. You don't have to chase stolen bases if you don't want to. You find, you value guys for what they do. Like, I, you know, I'm in Raz Slam, and I might not be very good this year in that, but I enjoyed that aspect of it there. And I tried to do a creative build. I, I tried to be super aggro on hitting, figuring everybody would chase pitching after mm-hmm. last year. Fortunately, everybody in my league also chased hitting. So, you know, that that great – it's like going uh, in, in football, going zero running back when there's four other guys doing zero running back. Okay, great. Yeah, I just you – know, there's no value in that. Yep. Got to play the room. Exactly. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a big part of it. Um, and I think, you know, with the standard format, the, actually the scoring that we use in tout is the same scoring this year because we alternate from year to year depending upon right. the champion. And that's what uh, Ariel had picked last year. Maybe he picks it again this year. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. It isn't the final. Um, but uh, so I was familiar with the scoring. I was familiar with the format. And I thought I executed my build well. Um, but I think the nature of head-to-head, especially when it comes down to playoffs, you know, if the starts don't fall right in a given week or guys don't perform in a given week, there's nothing you can do because you're not out there throwing the ball or, or hitting it. Right. Uh, you know, so – there's some limitations there. Unfortunately, I ended up losing in the semifinals uh, to Frank, but um, yeah, and it was close too. You know, right down until right. the the very end. So um, a lot of times, it's just about how you stack up. Um, you know, your pitching and your starts, and I think that's really where you know I think people knock head to head because of the lack of sort of strategy in comparison to. Roto, where I think we're always like looking very long term, almost like that marathon approach where it's more this this longer race built of like right. short sprints within head to head. And a lot of it is about, you know, positioning and posturing your starters. So you get a certain number of starts within a given week, um, because if you get a certain number of starts, it's one of those things, you know, just just going back to uh, to basics, you know, you're going to get like an average number of points per start. Um, obviously some higher and some lower, but if you stay within there, you're usually going to get a certain amount of points and you can kind of sort of project out how you're going to perform on a given week. Now, did you try to like build up your roster? So you had more pitchers, so you had more starts to choose from when you got to the playoffs, once you had a pretty good idea that you'd be making the playoffs. Yeah. And even from the very beginning um, in the, in the auction, um, you know, I knew I was committing at least 60% of, you know, my kitty to my pitching staff. Wow. Um, and I kind of had different tiered out guys, guys that I thought would overperform at a certain dollar value. I knew I had to get a top five starter. You know, I got Walker Bueller. Um, there was sort of this next tier below where I felt like these guys are probably on par with a lot of those top guys, um, but might be discounted a little bit. That guy for me was Brandon Woodruff. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, sort of that 20, like, well, I'll say like, you know, 18 to like $24 tier, which is like sort of my third starter. Um, I ended up going after uh, Corbin Burns at twenty dollars. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that on your that, roster. Yeah, that's that paid nice. off great. Um, kind of made up for me overspending a little bit on Louis Castillo, who wasn't bad toward the end of the season. Um, and then it, a lot of it was just you know trying to piecemeal together other guys that I knew went deep into games, and I put more of an emphasis in this format um, 
where like Roto, I'm looking really more K, K per nine sort of a, a, a build on Roto because I want guys based on innings to have a certain number of strikeouts. Here, I care a little bit less about strikeouts. I care about quality starts. I care about clean innings. You know, where I think I owned him or rostered him back in 2020, didn't have him this year, but like an Adam Wainwright inherently has a little bit more value in a format like this or Kyle Hendricks or someone like that. Sure. Uh, and th- that's great advice. And, and again, knowing your league format, knowing what plays uh, is super important. Let's talk Wainwright specifically for a second here, though, because this is a guy who had like four years in a row of four plus ERAs, high whips. For all intents and purposes, it looked like he was done. Then he was amazing last year and even better this year. My mm-hmm. thesis going into the season, one of my theses was players that feasted off the central divisions last year would suffer a little bit. They'd backtrack a little bit. That did not happen with Adam Weiner. Not at all. Not even close. He's been amazing this year. Yeah. And there, and there hasn't been like a significant difference in terms of, um, you know, his pitch usage. Um, right. You know, he's still predominantly throwing the same amount of fastballs he has for the last four or five years you know, same amount of cutters that he has for the last four or five years. Same thing with his, you know, vicious curveball. We all know about that slow, you know, big 12-6 curve that he has. Um, he's m- mixing in the changeup a little bit more this year, but it's it's not substantial. Um, you know, so it's it's one of those things where it's like, all right, is this guy just feeling healthy? Is he able to just execute into certain spots and feel and command is something that we know uh, as pitchers age, they may lose velocity, but they often um, add feel and just, you know, sort of veteran savvy in terms of how they sequence up on certain batters. So I'd be interested to see like what kind of work Wainwright's doing in the background, what kind of scouting reports and advanced scouting reports he's working with. Um, or if it's just a matter of being healthy, you know, yeah, there's too. nothing that sort of jumps off the page for, for you. If you look at his fan graphs page or whatever um, about what's sort of shifted over the last couple of years versus the couple of years prior where he did struggle. Yeah. Well, and even at his peak, he wasn't like going to overpower everybody. He wasn't a massive K guy. He wasn't like, oh my God, look at that stuff. You just, but he struck me as this really smart pitcher that knew how to set up hitters. So it makes sense that he'd adapt a little bit quicker. Maybe he's someone that adapted to the lack of sticky stuff quicker than other pitchers. Not to name any names, you Darvish. Uh, but, you know, it, it, you see that and you look, you know, he didn't, there was no drop off. In fact, he got better. Yeah. And I think that, you know, sometimes there's different types of starters too, right. And there's different types of fastballs and everything else. And, um, you know, he's not a, he's not a heavy ride guy. Um, no. you know, he's, he's looking for, you know, lower efficiency fastball. Something's going to sink a little bit. He's six foot seven. So he can create that downhill plane. Um, and maybe as, you know, bat passive adjusted from, um, being really, really steep and, and sort of focused on, um, you know, destroying pitches in the lower quadrants. Um, that's obviously changed in terms of pitching philosophy. And I think we're sort of in this middle period with hitting where there's a lot of guys who you know, are flattening out a little bit, um, if, if only to be able to hit high fastballs and, um, you know, cover the plate better there. Um, because the attack plans, especially for a lot of these guys coming out of the minors, coming out of the amateur ranks, um, you know, they've pretty much played the, the north-south game. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the East-West game, which is something that we had been familiar with for sort of years prior to that with Ray Searage and those sort of guys, you know, that right. were, you know, sort of sort of work in that axis. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's funny how you get the evolving philosophies. It used to be back in the day, hitting-wise, Charlie Laos, you know, let's hit down on that ball. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, things like that. And then the, the narrative changes, the what is optimal changes, and mm-hmm. that, that changes along with the ball. 
you know, and we've had constant changes on the ball lately. A lot more focus on that too. There might've been changes on the ball in the, in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, we just didn't know about it. Now we know about everything, or at least we know more about everything. Yeah. We know more about how they move and, you know, we can check those sort of things and right. um, identify, you know, changes in, in movement pretty quickly. Though it's tough to do that. Um, it's still something we can identify if, you know, someone's doing one thing differently than they had before, you know, then you exactly. can ask the question, what'd you change in your grip? What'd you do here? What'd you do there? Um, it's one of the things that's great about baseball. You know, if these human beings, they're constantly evolving and de-evolving. So yep. from year to year, you know, even uh, the best process, you're going to miss some stuff just because they're people, you know? Yeah. They're, they're not numbers on a card. As I learned constantly with Robbie Ray every single time, but he goes out, I'm like, ah, there he goes again. Not on my roster. Not in any of my 17 leagues. There we go. I think I have him in a dynasty league only because he was like thrown back and I needed like some starter depth and was like, all right, I'll grab Robbie Ray. And all of a sudden he's like the best starter on my team and replace Chris Sale. You know, it's, it's amazing. It is really amazing. Uh, before we uh, move on, uh, Adam Wainwright next year, he's going to be a lot more expensive. He was probably around pick 300 by the end of March. Uh, where does he go next year? And are you there for that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess that's kind of a question because I do feel like within the industry often um, we can like a guy's performance. This guy's going to be ranked higher. This guy's going to be ranked higher. And then other narratives start to come out, you know, yeah. pitchers sign in a better location than they had before. And we'll often push down like boring t performers more than they should. Of so course. I wonder, I, you know, I, I would assume that it's going to be higher than last year, but. You know, I, I'm still hard pressed to think that people are going to be targeting within the, the the top 200 picks, you know, and maybe I'm wrong. But depending upon the format, um, that could be a value, especially if you're playing in a quality start format or right. something like a head to head points league where, you know, they value innings and they value clean innings. Um, Wainwright could still be a pretty good discount you know, at the table. I think back to guys like obviously it's the hitting side, so it's not a great, great comp, but like David Ortiz. Ortiz for years was yep. like, you know, whatever, top 40 hitter in fantasy. And every year he'd go around 100. <laughs> like, yeah. it kind of happened to Nelson Cruz, too, you know? Um, He's a DH. He doesn't run. Exactly. He's old. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Chase the numbers, chase the production, chase what the guy's going to do. Don't worry about the other stuff. That stuff tends, to, you know, the best laid plans, you know, often fold. So I'd say just go after the production. And, you know, if you have a utility sitter, go for it. It's kind of the same thing with Wainwright. It may hurt your, uh, it may hurt your, your, your case. Um, but ultimately, you know, ratios are, are so tough these days. Um, and if you play in a W league, he's going to help you there. Quality starts too. Agreed. We're going to uh, continue our conversation with uh, Jeff Ponce, but uh, first quick note from our friends at Yahoo. The new NFL season is finally here and Yahoo is excited to kick off daily fantasy football. There will be a ton of big prize contests throughout the season on Yahoo, including their multi-entry contest now being shark free. To celebrate the opening of Yahoo Daily Fantasy Football and becoming shark-free, Yahoo is giving all users the opportunity to claim free $10 in contrast entry credit. Users can take advantage of this free $10 entry credit offer to join one of Yahoo's biggest contests, including the $1 million baller contest. The $1 million baller contest features $1 million in total prizes, including first place receiving $100,000 and an entry into the first ever Yahoo Fantasy Football Championship Live Finals event, which will occur at MGM National Harbor in Maryland this December. Play daily fantasy football on Yahoo this season. Visit sports.yahoo.com slash daily fantasy slash welcome 
to claim the free $10 offer to get started. I'm Jeff Erickson here with Jeff Ponce. You can follow Jeff's work at Prospects Live. You can follow him on Twitter at Prospect Jesus. You can hear him on the Rasball podcast. And if you want to catch up on what his work uh, they did, the Cape Cod League, you go to Perfect Game USA. Uh, one more thing about uh, head-to-head league. So you spent 60% of your uh, auction budget on pitching. Uh, what gave for you? Someone has to give when you spend that much on starting pitching. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of it is. So I have a process that I've done all three years in tout. Um, the first year, honestly, I just didn't, man, I didn't, I think there's a, a level, I think anybody that's played in tout would say this, that like that you have to get used to on roto a little bit and some yes. of the, the processes of the bidding. Um, so I made some bonehead moves early on in 2018, but okay. uh, 19, But the last two years have been pretty competitive. This year, I was I came out the gates like, you know, gangbusters and held, and I think it was pretty much second all season behind Ariel, who's just a tremendous fantasy player and really great at this format. So, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I'll take I'm my in TGFBI right with him. He He's a great player. Yeah, he just really is. And he's one of the better players that that's out there. Um, and I think he does a great job with his work just in terms of, you know, um, helping readership to understand his process and what he does. So um, one thing that, that I do is I sort of look at, um, I guess the best way to put it is like surplus value. So looking at almost like what, you know, would be replacement level for pitchers, relievers, and then hitters um, within the league. And I separate out between, you know, that number and then the number of points that they're projected to be over. Um, I've been using, um, you know, steamer the last couple of years, uh, for these projections, I build them in there. Um, and then I just more or less look, I do my rankings based upon what the, the Delta is between, you know, what a replacement level guy is and what this guy is and what he's projected to score. Um, and just looking at all the different categories and the point totals and all that sort of stuff. So I have that all worked into, into my equation. Um, and in the last couple of years, it's really served me well, uh, just in terms of being able to identify value uh, and maybe okay. save a little bit when other guys are zagging. Um, and I think that was the big thing with pitching is I noticed that like the difference between, you know, sort of the, the replacement level pitchers or even a little bit above that um, and the top guys was pretty significant. So right. I kind of left being like, I need four guys that I think that can handle this. And I need one really, really good closer. Um, cause the closers actually in this are, are fairly good value, but just in terms of getting weekly points, it's a little bit tougher to, to back sure. on that week in week out. Cause a guy could have three saves in one week and then not have a save for, you know, 10 days or something like that. So, um, one of the reasons I sort of, sh- you know, like shy away from that a little bit, but I went after Hater, and, you know, in addition to the other starters I got, and then I figured like, there's a lot of guys that are above replacement level value and hitting that have some upside, some guys that maybe because of injuries or whatever, like an Aaron judge uh, are depressed in terms of their price a little bit. I think I got to, I, judge was like my best buy. It was like $14 or something. And it was like, this is a, an OBP format, essentially. Right. You right. Look at the way for, you know, um, um, points is that, Judge is like perfect for this. So I was trying to sort of grab my starters, sit for a little bit. I think I maybe sat back for, you know, 25, 30 players without bidding or whatever, and then waited to see the guys that had already spent, you know, then went back in, grabbed my starters that I or my hitters that I felt were sort of good replacement value. Uh, and then the same thing with any, you know, sort of pitchers to fill up my staff that I thought were good value as well. And, you know, might be on the upswing. One of those was Dylan Cease, actually, which also, you know, sort of paid off and was, was a good move for me. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, Michael Brantley, there's like a lot of guys like that. If you look at my, my offense that, um, maybe we're a little underappreciated. I got my buddy, Jonathan India there. who's one of my favorite prospects for a long time. beating that drum. Um, nice. and he just, you know, certainly paid dividends. So I really liked my build. Um, I probably could have executed a little bit better during the summer when I was <laughs> in and out of multiple Cape league games every day. Sure. Of course. And that's the thing. Life intervenes sometimes. It makes it really difficult to stay on top of it. I'm looking at your hitting roster. Like Alex Verdugo is one of those sort of guys that is, you know, fits that level. He's kind of like a younger Michael Brantley, basically. Mm. Um, You did spend up on Boba You did spend up on, uh, on Jose Ramirez and those both paid off significantly as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, good middle infielders um, or good infielders. um, Right. And, and just, at least a couple of horses in the offense that, you know, I felt were, uh, were going to provide, you know, consistent value. And I felt that Bichette might be a guy that um, because of how good I thought that Toronto offense could potentially be um, a guy that could just provide a ton of value throughout the season and, you know, potentially, you know, out earn what I spent on him to, to, to get Bichette. For sure. And it certainly paid off and that, that, that Toronto offense has just been a sight to behold lately. Uh, absent yet uh, Wednesday or Tuesday night when he was going up against they were going up against Rasmussen, which just blows me away. By the way, that he, he's been pitching so well for them. Got him, got him in my home head-to-head points league. I'm in the final this week, and I love nice. him. relief pitcher, starting pitcher eligible. So I don't have to I don't have to roster any closers in that league. I got Quantrill, I got him, um, and uh, Pavetta that I've kind of been filtering back and forth between a couple of relief spots. So that's another little trick I think with head to head points is sometimes you can just punt relievers all entirely and find guys that fit into those slots. So, Oh yeah. Here's another one that's been big for me. Yahoo is huge. Any Yahoo league, if you're required to have like X number of relief pitchers, you know, those guys that are both eligible, Freddie Peralta was a perfect guy for that too this year. Just drafted Peralta in my home league for that reason. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Get all those extra innings, get all those extra K's from that spot. You know, it's a great way to not pay up for the retail closers. I like that a lot. Uh, I, you mentioned closers and how you like to get one elite one there and even in a head to head format here, but in a, in a roto format, I think a lot of people, I think the cost of closers is going to go up next year because of the uncertainty in the, like half the teams in baseball. And for the most part, the elite closers were well worth the the, the cost that it came at. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that I wish I did a better job of this year. Um, You know, and I think the other thing is you can also kind of fool yourself early on where you get a guy like Matt Barnes who's performing for a couple of months and you're like, look at this. Like, I grabbed Matt Matt Barnes at a discount and that's going to pay off. And then all of a sudden, you know, it comes late July, early August and you're like, I can't can't roster Matt Barnes any longer. (laughs) My ratio is catch on fire here. Alex Ray is the same thing, you know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. it, it, it strikes midnight for those guys very frequently, unless your name is Mark Melanson, in which case you just keep on notching saves and all that. But, uh, oh, man, San if I'd gotten that right has, more often. has the Cardinals old devil magic, I think. It, they do. It comes, it comes across that way, not to say that they're not a great organization. I think a lot of that is internal development and, you know, um, you know all that they've done since, uh, you know, Farhan has taken over there. So, um, yeah you know, big part of it. But uh, yeah, I think in Roto in particular, paying up for closers at this point makes a lot of sense. Um, And it's, you know, and if you're in a format like a TGFBI or something where you're trying to capture um, an overall, it's a real difference maker. That and steals, um, because they're often categories that good teams that may win a league 
will punt. But if you're trying to compete against 350 different teams and sort of claim the top prize, you got to have steals and you got to have saves. Yeah, hundred percent. And if NFBC, TGFBI, uh, absolutely, you need that. It's it's vital. I'm hundred percent with you on that. Uh, Let's talk. We're going to talk scouting in a second, but first, a a note from our friends at WinBet. If there's one thing we appreciate here at RotoWire, it's making good decisions, and even more so, making the right decision. Listen up, folks. I have an incredible offer for you with RotoWire's newest partner, WinBet, the premier digital casino and sportsbook app. WinBet is now the exclusive sponsor for RotoWire's Fantasy Podcast. WinBet brings you all the latest action with a user-friendly interface, money line bets, boosted parlays, over-unders, round robins, live betting, and so much more at your fi- are at your fingertips. Want a break from sports betting? Head into WinBet's digital casino and take a spin on roulette, double down in blackjack, slam the slots, or try your hand at baccarat. WinBet is currently available in six states, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia, while rapidly expanding. At WinBet, the possibilities are limitless. WinBet is currently offering all RotoWire listeners a risk-free bet up to $500 on your first wager. Download WinBet now. That's W-Y-N-N-B-E-T. WinBet, the exclusive partner for RotoWire's fantasy podcast. Jeff Erickson here with Jeff Ponce. You can read Jeff's work at Prospects Live. You can uh, listen to him on the Rasball podcast and, of course, catch up with what he did for the Cape Cod League at Perfect Game USA. Let's talk scouting, Jeff. Uh, sure. This has got to be a very difficult year to scout. And, you know, with so many teams starting late, you know, prospects mm-hmm. starting late, a lot of prospects taking the year off last year, or at least mm-hmm. in terms of organized ball. Gathering context, I think, would have to be very difficult for some of these top prospects and who they're facing. Yeah. And I think it's something that, um, you know, we did a really good job this year. Once the the season kicked off, we had the idea of um, let's write every day, you know, about the minor leagues. Let's essentially do um, what we call the daily sheet where we can cover anywhere from, you know, 55 to, you know, a hundred players, even deep in terms of blurbs. Um, There's a few different uh, writers over on the, the, on prospects lab that contribute um, myself, you know, for a good chunk of the season, handled AAA and AA. Um, we have Reese White, who's handling high A and the complexes now. Matt Thompson, who's done uh, a lot of work on low A, done some complex stuff as well, and uh, filled in here and there when I needed a break. But uh, I think what that's allowed us to do is really watch players develop throughout the season at different levels, kind of have expertise in our own levels, and bring that into a more general, you know, conversation. Um, you know, on our group text between all the guys that are writing on the sheet. Um, so I think that helped a lot just to keep track of like, all right, who's popping? Who do we need to go see? Um, and obviously we have, you know, scouts like myself who are located you know, all throughout the country, um, you know, Massachusetts, all the way down to Florida, Texas, um, California, you know, everything in between. And just trying to know who to go after, who we should make priority, you know, watches and follows. Sure. Um, so yeah, I would say that, um, you know, that was one of those things where it was difficult, but I, I also think that the year away from not being able to really get out to the park, um, which is such a consistent part of like all of our lives, um, you know, as, as stressful as it can be as a father of three kids, you know, I'm still getting to, you know, 60 to 70 games between Are you really? That's awesome. college ball and then, um, and then the minor leagues around here and, you know, Worcester just opened up about 15 minutes down the road from my house. So that was nice. Saved me a little bit of drive time there. Um, but I think there was just so much, so much excitement within the team to, to get back out there and just be back at the park. And, and it's hard when you're out there now, not just to smile when you realize, you know, 
how much you appreciate it when something gets taken away from you you know it's the old yeah. the old expression um you sort of appreciate it a lot more so as difficult as it was i think it was also really exciting um and it was really exciting to see kind of the the players that developed over the course of a year away we don't see these guys for a year you know they come back bigger stronger um and this is a this is a theme i think throughout all of baseball um whether it be you know Arizona last year and sort of his breakout or a lot of these different guys in the minor leagues. Anthony Volpe is one that comes to mind. Um, yeah. MJ Melendez being another one that really comes to mind. Um, and then a lot of guys in the college side and, and prep side, there are a lot of guys that put in the work, you know, if they were, they were shut down for however many months, depending upon where they lived. A lot of players in California, you know, where they really couldn't play pretty much all summer last year. Um, a lot of those guys just put in the work, you know, they're going to these training facilities and they're able to sort of take a step back and really focus on the craft. And I think sometimes we can all, you know, admit this within our own lives that, you know, there's a point in time where you really need to take like twice as much time as you have to perfect something. Right. (laughs) But you really can't because, you know, you have to go back, you have to go into, you know, teams, blah, blah, blah. And the other thing is we had coaching staffs at times. um, And I know this is the case with, with MJ Melendez, where, um, you know, that, that coaching staff, uh, in 2019, I believe it was, um, I'm drawing a blank on so many of these teams moved I'm trying to think of the team, but it's high a team. Um, there was a lot of miscommunication within that coaching staff Oh yeah, um, and a lot of guys backed up, um, you know, and I think Wilmington, by the way, yeah, um, yeah. and I think that, you know, his ability to be able to. Um, you know, sort of train with his guys. And I, I happen to be really good friends with one of his hitting coaches, uh, Jared Goodwin, uh, who's actually one of my bosses at Perfect Game, but also was on um, MJ Melendez's father coaches Florida International University, which is a good D1 program down there in Florida. Uh, and he was able to go to the facility every day, you know, because his father's a coach. He's got access to the facility. You know, he's able to go into the cage, put in that work. And he reworked his swing and figured out his timing, figured out some of the mechanical things that were wrong with MJ Melendez's swing. And, you know, as a recording this, I think he's leading or is tied for the minor league lead in home runs this year and did it all on the upper levels as a really good defensive catcher. Um, so I think he's the perfect example of what 2021 could sort of bring us is some of these really exciting breakouts where guys were able to get into the systems, whether it's a pitcher getting into the Rapsodo data or getting into the pitch level data and trying out different things for a month until he figures out a new slider and then gets real great feel for it. All of a sudden that takes him to the next level. It's kind of the same thing with a guy like Melendez where he was able to kind of get with himself, figure it out what he needed to do and change without, you know, anyone yapping at him, not worrying about the fans or the production that shows up on his fan graphs page and just hit and, you know, sometimes that's all that's needed with these guys. And, you know, it's another example of just development not being linear. Um, right. So I think from that perspective, you know, I don't I don't look at it as even a negative. I think it's just it's great to be back. But also it was great to see a lot of these guys, you know, see the fruits of their labor really, you know, come to fruition here in, in, in 2021. And um, so many of these players taking a massive step forward you know, in terms of the type of stuff um, that they were doing on baseball fields at the professional level versus what they were doing in 2019. Right. Um, and it's continuing. Guys like Dustin Harris over the last month, you know, have taken a huge jump on on lists. I know, you know, um, your colleague and, and my good friend James Anderson is, is a huge advocate of him. Um, Jaron Duran, 
is another one. Jaron Duran. I mean, when I saw Jaron Duran the first time in the Cape Cod League, like four years ago, he didn't hit any homers. He was a slash and dash 70 runner, um, you know, at second base. He was a lot more like D Gordon than the guy that we've seen now. He's in a new position. He's now a center fielder. Um, He changed his his swing entirely. And he's a a, a left-handed power hitter with on-base ability and double-plus speed that can play in center field. Um, obviously, he didn't take off in his first you know, run through the majors, but um, now he's a different guy than he was. And we didn't see that swing change until he showed up at the alternate site in Pawtucket last summer. And then all of a sudden, it was like Jaron Duran's hitting homers. Like, right, right, you yeah, know? yeah. It was like captain-level swing, not anymore. Yeah, and that's the thing is like – and if. There's a lot of prospects. They didn't get a chance to go to alternate training camp sites. They just had to do their work on their own, you know, with like Zoom calls with their coaching staff at best. And mm-hmm. it just shows like so much development's done behind the scenes. Yeah. So much of that development's incumbent also on who they're working with. And, you know, you mentioned how Melendez had a mess of a coaching staff in 2019 at Wilmington, uh, or at least the message got mixed or whatever the case may be. Some organizations are way better at the development side of things. And, you don't realize that and it's so much is done not under our watchful eye. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I have some friends within the Orioles organization and, you know, when, and they had worked for Duquette and, and, you know, are, are now part of, you know, still part of the organization. And I was like, you know, what was, what was really the biggest difference in terms of, um, you know, the organizational philosophy um, between, you know, Duquette and Elias. And um, the first thing they said was, you know, it's not one size fits all any longer, you know, in terms of the training right. and philosophies, we're looking at each guy and identifying whether it's through analytics or just conversations. What is this person comfortable with? What are they good at? What are the things we need to challenge them with? And I think we've now seen, you know, at least on the minor league level, Baltimore has really blossomed as an organization and has great depth and has done a good job of not only targeting the right players that fit sort of their mantra or their you know viewpoint and, and style of play um, in the draft and on the international market, a lot of those guys are taking big, massive step forwards once they get into the organization and are really developing. And a lot of that has to do with that individualized sort of development plans. Um, and I think that's that's the market inefficiency. You know, if you're a good dev team, um, you don't have to pick in the top of the first round. Cough, cough, right. Dodgers. It's exactly what the Dodgers. Exactly. Um, you yeah. don't have to spend as much money as everybody else. Cough, cough, Rays. It's what the Rays have done. Um, and really, it doesn't matter what your market is and how much you spend. I think you got to spend on the development side of things, um, and ultimately, that's what pays off dividends, especially in terms of adding value to the players you bring into your organization, because um, that pays dividends not only in terms of play on the field, options for your major league team but also players that you develop that might be surplus um, that you can then trade away to upgrade areas where, you know, you might potentially be lacking. So um, I think that's the focus that needs to happen and what separates the great organizations right now from the bad ones. You know, it's like we said before with San Francisco, they've just done a really good job of identifying the right guys, bringing them in their organization and getting the most out of them. That's the amazing thing is they're doing it on both sides of the ball, the pitching and hitting. Um, mm-hmm. They're getting so much mileage out of some of these players. I mean, I'm a Reds fan, and I'm just watching every ex-Red pitcher go over there and, and develop. Like, ah, hey, Descalfani's good. Who knew? Uh, but, you know, <laughs> some of that might be the ballpark too, because I do think yeah, the Reds a little bit of that, yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. They're they're they're, and that's another thing. Like, you look at you know, ballpark 
is a huge factor on development. And the miners too, the Rockies, not only do they have course feel, but if you look through their history, like they've almost all of their affiliates have played at hitters ballparks too. It's, you know, with maybe one level as being the exception. Hart, but it's, Hartford's the only one that's neutral. Yeah. And yeah. it gets you to overrate your hitters. It, it makes it hard for your pitchers to develop trust in their pitches when it still gets, you know, it, it gets out of the park, even though they don't even give up great contact. That's got to just got to weigh on pitchers, especially when they're developing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think it, it, it's tough, too, when you're trying to get a guy to try something else and mm -hmm. he's not seeing success and you don't even have sort of that that cushion or that pillow, um, you know, that they're playing, you know, in a, you know, a a park that has, a I think, you know, Asheville for years, I think it's like three, 310 or 300 down the right. line. And it's not like a pesky pole situation where it juts out to like 370. It's like... 300 and there's like 20 feet of wall there, you know? <laughs> exactly um, so that skews a lot of numbers you know um offensively and in terms of production from from pitchers you know so yeah, I, I i remember like bidding on like ben petrick aggressively just because of the numbers he's putting up in the minors and things like that but yep. it, it just happens all the time and now we have a little bit more context with that there it, it's a little bit more common knowledge but still it, it's an under i think it's sometimes an underviewed factor mm -hmm. uh we're going to talk some specific players, some guys that have made some debuts, get uh, Jeff's take. But first, a note from our friends at Vivid Seats. The summer is coming to an end, which means only one month until postseason baseball. There's no better place to be than Vivid Seats to watch your team race towards the postseason. So grab your MLB tickets, maybe a st stadium hot dog or two, and cheer on your favorite team from the stands. Even better, they have a rewards program designed to provide real rewards for fans. Earn rewards ticket upgrades, and perks just for shopping. If you're looking for tickets to the game to see your favorite performer or that show, that new show everyone is talking about, Vivid Seats has it all. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Big thanks to Vivid Seats and also to our sponsors on the Blue Wire Network. Uh, I'm Jeff Erickson. I'm here with Jeff Ponce from Prospects Live, uh, Live, uh, and also the Rasball Podcast. And of course, uh, Perfect Game USA uh, uh, covering the Cape Cod League. Let's talk about some pitchers, uh, players, both pitchers and hitters, that have recently made their debut. Because uh, these are guys you probably have been tracking all along. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool to see them once they hit the bigs. All politics are local. I'm a Reds fan. I want to know more about Jose Barrero. Is this is this power surge that he had in the minors? Is this legit? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a guy where, you know, max exit velocities are like 109, 110. Um, and that's from, you know, against righties and lefties. So there's no ma- massive split issues there, really. He's really strong against against right-handers, um, power plays against right-handers. He's aggressive in terms of his approach. Um, probably never going to be, you know, a, a 13%, 14% walk rate guy, but he does walk enough. Um, but he's aggressive in terms of chasing pitches out of the zone that he feels he can hit. He's a bigger guy, 6'2", um, has decent-sized, you know, sort of length on his limbs, um, and has the ability to hit stuff on the outer half. Um which I think is, you know, one of the things that sort of plays up the profile. Uh, it's mostly pull side power. It's a good contact hitter too, you know, in terms of like the heat maps and that sort of thing. Um, you know, he's pretty much 75% plus across the board. Uh, really good at hitting um, high fastballs actually in particular, which I think, you know, will play uh, right now in, in the majors. Uh, and he's an elite shortstop. I mean, he's a guy that defensively has always stood out um, since he signed out of Cuba. And the question was, there's power here. We don't know how much he's going to hit. Well, he's shown that, you know, there are, you know, at least above average, you know, 55, maybe borderline 60 plus um, bats of ball skills and uh, sort of uh, kind of equal power and uh, a player that has those offensive skills um, plus his defensive profile, I really think is an everyday guy. Um, I'm a little shocked that he hasn't already overtaken like, you know, the everyday right? shortstop job with Cincinnati, but, uh, you know, they've obviously been sort of on the edge on the cusp of, you know, getting to the playoffs. And, you know, I understand it to a degree trying to take a guy like that along slowly, but um, I think he's going to contribute in the next year or so and, and be, a you know, maybe not a star, but just a really good player that provides value on both sides of the ball. Yeah. I understood when they continue to play farmer because he was coming off the best month of his life. I get it, but they've lost seven series in a row now after losing two out of three to the pirates. Just play the kid. See if you can get some improvement. Uh, I don't know. I just that's just my take. But it's going to be a huge free agent market for shortstops this offseason. The Reds probably aren't going to dabble in that because uh, they didn't last year when they had a clear need. Are they just? Do you think Barrera is ready to take over next year? Would that be the justifiable path? Just say, just hey, this is our guy. I really do. Um, you know, he's 23 right now. He turns 24 uh, beginning of April. Um, so it's right around that time. He's on the 40 man, obviously. Right. Um, there's no restrictions in terms of that. Uh, and he's, you know, cost controlled and is probably going to be as good as a lot of guys you could sign it. <laughs> 10 million plus, you know, um, yeah. this is sort of the baseline that you're looking for of a guy that has some power. He's got contact. But overall, even when he's slumping at the plate is going to provide a ton of value for you in the fields. Um, and I think 
you know, Louis Castillo and some of those other guys that are ground ball heavy are probably going to appreciate having Barrero behind him. Um, and I know that, you know, the Reds in general haven't always been the strongest defensive infield setup over the last. That's a kind years. way of putting it. A very <laughs> kind way of putting have it. Eugenio Suarez back at shortstop, which I oh, never no. thought I would see. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah. Even our I guy, think- Jonathan India, has his moments at second base. He, he He's fun. He has range. Yes. Decisions aren't always strong, uh, but uh, he's I also switching positions from, too. Yeah, exactly. Coming from coming from third base, and uh, I think you know, um, being friendly with with India's you know travel long time travel ball coach. Um, this is a guy that you know my friend who coached him in travel ball literally would have to sit him in meaningless games and tournaments because they could be like, hey, this is just like the last game of you know, the opening group stages and we're already clinched for the playoffs. And if we play India, he's going to be diving on balls when we're up 18 to nothing against this team. Right. It's just the kind of guy he is. So I think sometimes, you know, he can get uh, a little out of himself in the field and try to do too much. And I think it's a product of that where, um, as opposed to like a lack of athleticism or ability, it's probably just, you know, one of the few things about his game that isn't fully polished. Cause I think when we see him at the plate, he's just, his plate approach and his, his eyes oh, so concerning. Good. Yeah. You want to talk about a guy that really developed over uh, the shutdown period and in the alternate training camp site. I mean, you know, there were leaked out. There were raves about how he, how his work ethic was so strong and how he took the leap. Yeah. Uh, but then you got yeah. to see it in spring training and then you got to see it, you know, starting in June when they put him in leadoff, you mm-hmm. really saw it take off there. And it's such a good approach to have at the top of the plate, knowing a guy that can get on base a lot like that. Absolutely. I think there's even more in the tank in terms of power and, you know, average yeah. over the next couple of years. It's a good play. Yeah. And that was definitely the knock was the power, lack of power in the minors. So I'm glad to see him do that. Clark Schmidt was a James Anderson favorite before he had a slew of injuries. Uh, he cut the call back. It wasn't great in his first time back, but you know, this is a guy that might be under the radar a little bit. You know, can he recapture his previous pro- prospect sheen? Um, you know, I don't, I think it's a relief profile, frankly. And this is so typical of the Yankees. They have so many, the Yankees in terms of, you know, you go right through, you know, their, their top 30 that we put out today. Um, there's stuff. I mean, they just, they target guys with big stuff and unique shape on pitches. Mm -hmm. Um, he's really a sinker, a sinker slider guy. Predominantly he mixes a four seam. Uh, and he mixes a sinker that have two different shapes. The four seam is really below average. I would almost ditch it at this point, frankly. Um, but you know, the, 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 the sinker, um, you know, sitting 94, 95, um, I think will play up in short stints, can get a heavy amount of ground balls. He's got a really, you know, a, a tremendous amount of arm side run, uh, on that pitch mixes it with, um, you know, he's got four pitches. He mixes it with a slider. He's got a change up, but really his predominant secondary, is a hard curveball um, where it averages, you know, 82 to 84 miles per hour. Uh, I think he's running up as high as like 85, 86, which um, that's like, you know, throwing a fastball at 103 miles an hour. I mean, like that is, that is about as hard as you're going to see a curveball get thrown at any level. If you're sitting mid eighties on a curveball, uh, it's pretty significant. And I think the thing there is he's got great two plane movement. Um, you know, he's got like negative 10 inches of drop in terms of the IVB. Um, you know, with 14 inches of, of, of um, sweep. So he's really getting like two plane movement, um, you know, on that curveball. It's a, you know, sort of a 11 um, 7, uh, uh, you know, sort of shape okay. on and break. Um, gets a ton of whiffs on it, doesn't get hit almost ever. I think he's actually got like a, a, a 200 Woba against that pitch in the minors this year and uh, the majors combined. So 
Um, still a really good pitch, but I think when you look at a guy like that, sinker, curveball, can mix in a third pitch every so often, but none of them really stand out. Um, that to me looks like he's going to be potentially a multi-inning reliever, you know, um, but a guy that could, you know, factor into that Yankees bullpen and maybe almost take like a Chad Green kind of a role long-term. Um, if there's some development on the changeup, maybe he throws the slider a little bit more. I know he's messed with a, a cutter here and there, but hasn't thrown many in game. Um, maybe that's a pathway to starting as he gets that third pitch. Um, but, you know, typically a guy like this, I, even if he does start, it's a sinker fastball. It's really more driven toward weak contact, ground ball contact. He's not going to miss a ton of bats. Um, those typically are the type of prospects that I shy away from in terms of yeah. targeting as, as potential starters. Um, just because if I'm going to if I'm going to roster uh, a pitching prospect in a dynasty league, I want to make sure the guy's missing bats. <laughs> sure. Of course. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Uh, compare him to his teammate, Luis Gill, uh, kind of a quiet profile coming up and then made a pretty big splash right away. Once he got to the big leagues, are you buying into that? What's his long-term uh, outlook for him? Yes. Louis heel, actually. It's, heel. Uh, sorry. Louis sorry. Heel. No, no problem. I believe me. I've been calling him Louis Gill for about like five years. And then, okay. you know, I finally hear a, a good announcer. It's like, no, it's heel. So yes, Louis heel is, uh, Kind of I will forever remember that now, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> He's kind of the opposite of Schmidt, where he yeah. is a high-ride, four-seam fastball guy. Um, you know, you're you're pushing up on, you know, sort of, if you're looking at IVB and induced vertical break in terms of, you know, how much it rides. Um, he's, you know, 18 to 20 is usually where he's in that range, which is plus. Um, so he's a guy that's going to attack high in the zone. He's going to get a lot of whiffs. He can run that thing up to triple digits, um, you know, sits 94 to 96, 97 miles per hour on that four seamer. Um, and he's a you know, fastballs are tricky. When we look at some of the data on the back end, um, you know, a lot of those guys, you know, typically, you know, your whiff rate, um, which is number of, you know, myths or swings and misses on total swings, you're usually looking under 30%. Uh, he's above 30% on that. A lot of that has to do with, you know, sort of the axis that he's pretty, you know, around 1230. So it's a pretty clean over the top axis. He gets a fair amount of ride. Um, but he's also somebody that because of his arm slot and, um, and because of, you know, heels height that he's, you know, six, two, but he's probably more like six, one, he's a little bit on the shorter side. So he's got a lower release and what that lower release does. And if you've read any of, you know, Alex Chamberlain's research on this, it plays up his uh, vertical approach angle. Um, right. So it means that it's a lot flatter in terms of how it comes in, which is harder to pick up out of the hand. Um, guys are usually expecting a fastball move this way or that way, um, where he gets a heavy amount of ride. He's got that, you know, um, it's like closer to four degrees than it is five degrees. Five degrees is kind of that generic threshold that you want to be below that number. You know, if you're going to be able to play up like a four seam fastball like that. And I think a lot of his success is playing off of that. Another guy that throws a really hard breaking ball. Uh, he's got a mid 80 slider that he throws, you know, 84 to 86 miles per hour. He's running up as high as 87 miles per hour. Um, you know, that's generating whiffs at around a 40% rate. And he and he lands it in the zone. Um, we've right. seen better command from heel than we had in the minors. That was always the knock was the stuff is big. He'll come out for two innings, three innings. He'll dominate. And then, you know, all of a sudden, fourth, fifth inning runs around, rolls around. And, you know, he walks four batters and gives up a home run. And, you know, there go your ratios. So right. um, he's taken tremendous strides, even within season in that regard. Um, I think I still think you're going to be, you know, um, 
probably uh, leaving yourself open to a blow up uh, every now and then, whether it's this season or even early next year. But um, he's one of the few Yankees sort of pitching prospects with stuff that's really been able to take that step forward into starter. And I think a lot of it comes down to how good the fastball is, how good that slider is, his ability to land both for strikes. He doesn't have a bad changeup either. Um, heavy run changeup. He kills a decent amount of lift on it, which is something I'm always looking at when I'm looking at changeups, whether it's at game or I'm looking at the numbers afterward. You know, if a guy is playing up high in the zone with a fastball, is he able to, you know, um, kill lift, you know, by by pronating, you know, on the changeup? And right. what that does is it allows to come out of a similar release, similar arm speed. But, you know, one's breaking high like this. The other one sort of parachutes late. Um, and he does a good job of that. So he's got three viable pitches, probably two plus pitches. So uh, he was a guy that I like a lot, even if he ended up in the bullpen. This is closer stuff. Nice. Nice. He'll made a, a, a had a really nice debut. A lot of other top pitching prospects did not, including our next guy, Aaron Ashby, who might have had one of the worst debuts. In a game his team actually won, if you recall. This was like the beginning of the end for the Cubs. He, get, he went uh, two-thirds of an inning, gave up seven runs. Only four of those were earned. Just got knocked around really hard. Uh, Brewers came back and won that game, wildly enough, which is like it, it's like changing the fortunes of both of those franchises. And since then, he, he's, he's been great since he came back up in August. You know, he, he had a 54 ERA after one outing. Now he's down to 313 with a one whip. Uh, and he's, I see him on prospect lists all the time. This is another great development guy, a development job done by the Brewers, it looks like. Yeah, and I think the thing that's fun with Ashby is he's got a really interesting arm slot. Uh, it is a lower release. Um, he's really athletic, and he kind of messes with his mechanics from time to time. So he'll pause on stuff. He'll quick pitch stuff. Um, you know, he'll change sort of his arm slot from time to time. I've seen him in, in certain starts uh, when I was covering AAA early in the season where from inning to inning, he would mess with different arm slots. He'd drop down a little really? bit more, get a little bit higher. Um, so there's a high amount of deception with this guy. The stuff is big, though. Um, he's mostly two-seam. He's mostly a sinker guy. Um, so he doesn't get a ton of whiffs on that pitch, but he lands it for strikes, gets a lot of uh, a lot of ground balls on that pitch, and he sort of leans on the slider and his changeup that plays off of the two-seamer very well. We typically see that. They move similarly in terms of two-seamers and sinkers, or excuse me, sinkers and, and change-ups, um, pronation sort of pitches. He's a pronation profile. Um and he's got a really good slider. Um, you know, slider has uh, a little bit of gyro, but it's it's mostly a, a sweeper. Um, fairly high spin. Another guy that throws it with good velocity. And he's actually had, between the minors and the majors, he's had a 55% whiff rate on his slider. And a lot of that comes down to something that we've learned. Breaking pitches, I don't care how it looks in the gifts. I don't care how much it sinks. I don't care how much it, you know, it, it, it sweeps. None of that stuff matters to me. If a guy throws a heavy gyro slider, which means it's spinning like a bullet, it's not moving a whole lot, it just kind of drops a little bit, but he throws it hard. He's throwing it 84, 85, 86 miles per hour. Velo is what misses bats, especially on secondaries more than anything else. Where I would say with fastballs, it's really about pitch shape. With secondaries, you really, you really got to be focusing on how hard they throw that breaking ball. And he's a guy that throws his breaking ball fairly hard. He's headed up to 87 uh, and averages 83 to 85. Now, is it more important to have the high velo or is it more important to have the contrast between that and the fastball? So let's say if a guy throws like a 91 mile an hour fastball, mm. uh, would it be more important to be a little bit lower on the slider or is it just a hard slider is still just more important? 
if he's throwing like a 92 mile, 91, 92 mile per hour four seamer, and uh, he's mixing an 87 mile per hour slider, the slider's still going to eat. The slider's yeah. still going to miss bats as long as he can land that in zone. And that's the other thing with a lot of these pitches that don't have huge movement. It's a lot easier for those guys to command it and land it in certain zones, right? Where mm-hmm. you don't have to pick, pinpoint a spot. Not everyone has to be, you know, vintage Kyle Hendrick or, or Greg Maddox or whatever. But, you know, I think if you look at like, Blake Snell's charts when he's good. The fastball up, you know, change up low arm side, you know, slide a breaking ball, you know, uh, low glove slide, glove side. If you can kind of hit that and do that, the velocity is going to play. And I've seen that even this summer where guys did throw their their secondaries really hard. I think it's different with changeups. Changeups, you definitely, unless you have a changeup that has like, you know, true like zero lift at all, like a, a Grayson Rodriguez and a ton of arm side run. Uh, and you can land it. Um, you want to see that sort of eight to 10 to even 15 mile per hour separation. When right. talking breaking pitches because of the nature of how they move, um, I think velocity is king there. All right. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. If you're you know, not a scout like me, don't aren't trained, you're more number scouting. Is there a danger in looking at like a minor league strikeout rate? Uh, like you look at Ash, but he struck out 100 batters in 63 innings this year in AAA. Is that, you know, do you without knowing the shape of the pitches, knowing the d- details of the pitches, like it, say for instance, if he, he gets by, by throwing that breaking ball more and having pinpoint control, as opposed to just mm-hmm. utterly dominating someone with a fastball, you know, are, are all strikeout rates the same? Yeah, I don't think they are. Um, definitely not all strikeout rates are necessarily right. the same. I'm, and I think a lot of a strong man question there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, but I think if like, if you're in the upper minors and I don't get it, like, you know, this guy's throwing 92 and, uh, you know, has an okay, you know, slider or curveball or whatever. Then it's like, I want to know at like a pitch level, what does the shape look like? Mm-hmm. Right. That's when you're really like, there's something else going on here. And we've seen that with guys. Not everybody has to throw 99 to miss bats. Um, where I do get apprehensive about strikeout rates is in a ball, um, in the lower minors, especially when a guy is change up heavy. Yeah, that's one thing that you'll see, especially a college guy comes out and has a really good feel for a changeup. He will dominate a ball. And there's been a million stories like this. I mean, one name that comes to mind is like Joey Wentz when he was with the Braves. Um, Now with the Tigers, not a bad arm. Um, But I always felt like his strikeout rates really played up from what they should have been. um, Simply because he was so changeup heavy. And uh, and it was just a really, really good changeup, uh, you know. But once you got up to the upper minors, it doesn't play as much. Guys, guys can lay off of that, you know. Um, right. They're not fooled by by a, by a good second, uh, a good off-speed pitch any longer, you know. Um, less so for breaking balls. I think guys see breaking balls where changeup is usually the last pitch that pitchers develop. So if a guy's 18, 19 years old coming out of high school or JUCO, um, he probably hasn't seen a lot of good changeups. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think that's a really good point. Jeff, you've been scouting for a long time. Are the fantasy baseball industry, a community, what, which, uh, community industry, either, whether we don't call it, we're rich in good scouting content now. Way, you know, There's pioneers like John Sickles that have been amazing forever, mm-hmm. but he was like one of three, you know, four or five guys. And now it's just, we're overwhelmed. Like, how did you get into doing what you did? And how, how do you make your mark in, in, a, in a more crowded uh, community? Yeah, um, I initially got into it uh, like many, many years ago. I grew up next to um, the stadium for the Red Sox AAA affiliate, okay. the Red Sox. And uh, I'm older; I'm almost forty. Um, and and I uh, I grew up going to see 
um, move on and, um, you know, seeing guys like a big one for me. And this is somebody that most people won't remember, but Phil Plantier had a huge oh, yeah. year in San Diego. I'm older year. than you. I know him. <laughs> Plantier was there, like Scott Cooper, John Valentin. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And so those are like the first exposure I had to baseball. Like I cared more about them. I love Clemens. I love Boggs and all those guys. But um, to me, like those, like Mo Vaughn was like it. Like I, I, I still love Mo Vaughn. Um, and I had the opportunity because uh, one of my father's friends um, had played in the Cape Cod League with a, a player by the name of Mickey Pina. Um, who was on that AAA team. And he worked at my parents' gym in the offseason. When my parents would work out, they would have me out there before I was going to hockey practice. And I would sit there and would talk to Mickey. And we would just talk and have conversations about sports or whatever. And um, and I had the opportunity to be the bat boy one season. So for two seasons. So um, work with Rico Petroselli, uh, who was a nice. Red Sox great, as well as Butch Hobson, who later coached the Red Sox when I was a kid. Um, and I got to be around those players every day. I got to be around the organization and uh, just sort of spurned this love for the minor leagues and particularly for uh, the Paw Sox, which are now defunct and uh, right. whatever. But uh, so that kind of got me into it. And then, um, you know, as life would have it, you move on, you go to college, get married, all these sort of things. I'd never thought about writing or getting into scouting uh, at the time because the world was different. Like you just, you know, you didn't, unless you had a connection, then you just really didn't get into it. My high school coach was a scout, but you know, I, it wasn't something that I wanted to do at 18 years old or even 22. Um, and then uh, I got into fantasy baseball and um, I found Rasball through uh, an Andy Barron's article where he described Gray as um, the Hunter S. Thompson of fantasy baseball. And as somebody <laughs> who's always a fan of Hunter S. Thompson, I was like, well, I got to read this blog. So um, I started reading it and kind of became a commenter. And then one day just sort of asked, what I would do to start writing content. And I wrote DFS for like two years okay. um, and then got the opportunity to also do the two start pitcher post and just try to add as many numbers and the things that I was looking at in terms of building um, like my head to head lineups and that sort of thing. Um, and then about 2015, somebody left that was doing the prospects and I got the opportunity to do it. It was great. I knew that I was into prospects and um I just took it and ran with it. You know, I made our list deeper as possible. I got really into covering the draft for fantasy baseball and for dynasty baseball. Um, you know, um, sort of started using the term first year player draft. It was draft, you know, I was ranking 75 to hundred players in the draft every year. Um, and I think that probably built some cachet. And then uh, as it kind of went on, I wanted to get more into just standard scouting and baseball content and not have it be necessarily fantasy focused. And uh, that's when I had, you know, um, linked up with, the, you know, Matt Thompson and a few other people um, to start prospects live back in 2018. And now uh, we're going on, on year, you know, three going into year four. Um, we just turned three years old a couple of weeks ago and um, it's been a blast. You know, I've gotten so many opportunities to, um, you know, hire guys that have been hired by major league teams as analysts and scouts and uh, awesome. be able to, you know, connect with them throughout their journey, uh, get an opportunity to, to work, um, you know, for a perfect game in the Cape Cod league this season. Um, and just sort of have that sort of face to face with players and managers and, and everything else, and just be able to go to games and, and have a focus as to what I'm doing at games. And I think that's what separated us. It's just, it's just passion. Like I, I yeah. love everything about the game of baseball. I don't really follow other sports any longer very much. And uh, year round, it's just 365 days a year. You know, I'm, I'm focused on baseball. You're already covering the 2022 first year player draft. Uh, you've, already, you've been interviewing prospects that are going to be in that draft. Mm -hmm. I love it. 
it's great. It shows that enthusiasm, that passion. And I I just think it's amazing that uh, they're, they're work you're doing, like James is doing great stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. there are so many good, you know, outlets, you know, the, 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 the podcast contest bracket thing that we've done. I mean, that just shed the light on how many good prospects prospect podcasts there are, for instance, and just the the passion that there is around in this uh, community. I love it. So uh, I love that you're doing that and you're still, you're still getting your, uh, you're doing well in tout wars. Uh, Like seeing you get your finish here. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on board today. This has been a blast. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I'm, uh, I'm happy to hop on and uh, you know, talk prospects and, and tout wars and everything else. Appreciate the opportunity. You bet. Uh, Two Star Starters is coming up tomorrow with uh, Todd Zola and I believe it's Tristan Cockroft tomorrow. Clay is on a little bit of a trip. So uh, tune in for that. Thanks to WinBet for your sponsorship. Please go check out Jeff's work at uh, Prospects Live. Follow him on Twitter at Prospect Jesus and uh, make sure to check all he has to offer there. Uh, We'll be back at you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.